Well, good afternoon. I'm Karen Kennerly, the Executive Director of Penn, and I want to thank you for coming this afternoon to hear about the Penn American Center mission to Chile last week. Um, a, uh, I have, as you know, next to me, Arthur Miller, uh, who was one of the two delegates who went on this mission. The other one was William Styron. Arthur Miller was president of International Penn from 1965 to 68, Arthur, is that correct? And is currently a vice president of International Penn and a member of the executive board of the American Center. Um, missions of this sort are central to our mandate, uh, which is, as the charter says, that um, Penn stands for the principle of unhampered transmission of thought within each nation and between all nations. And members pledge themselves to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and the community to which they belong, of course, as well as throughout the world. Um, in this spirit, uh, we do send missions from time to time, and the last for this one, most notable one also was with Arthur Miller. He and the English playwright Harold Tinter went to Turkey in 1985. Um, I think now I would like to turn this over to Arthur Miller and let's hear what happened last week. <coughs> Uh, Bill Styron uh, hasn't read this, but I'm assuming he has other remarks he would make. Uh, but he's not here, so uh, this is just my own view of what uh, some of what we did. If I made a complete accounting, it would be very long, and I didn't want to take up too much time. It was a strange dinner for both of us, I think, because we knew that the 40 or so journalists, members of the Chilean Journalists Association, who were seated at the long table in the private dining room of the hotel, were at least some of them in real danger of arrest, and that a number of them had already spent periods in jails. There was some chit-chat and laughter, but not much. One also knew that a few of those present were not opposed to the Pinochet regime, but had come to report the occasion for their newspapers. After the first course, the chairman went to the podium and greeted us with thanks for having come to Chile, and then Styron replied, and then I did. Like Bill, I was unprepared and spitballed a story. The first thing that came into my head about a press conference I'd had in China before beginning rehearsals of Death of a Salesman there. Fifty or so Chinese newspaper people were sitting there with pads and pencils ready, but I had waited in vain for any questions. It turned out that they expected me simply to tell them what I wanted to announce, and later I learned that after more than a decade of the Cultural Revolution and even before that, they had ceased to ask questions at press conferences, which was simply held for announcements. In fact, it was now thought impolite to ask questions. Concluding with the thought that this was the perfection of total press control, there was a little laughter, but not much. They were trying to figure us out, I guess. I did not know yet that a number of people were rumoring that the Chinese part, uh, Communist Party of Chile had paid our way down here, and that this possibility was not being altogether dismissed by absolutely everyone. So by the time I was in my chair again, I, and probably Bill too, was finding it hard to exactly read the skeptical mood around the table, over and above their obvious gratitude for our having come. The thing was that two of their members had been imprisoned in Valparaiso a few weeks before, and maybe they weren't in a mood for levity of any kind. They wanted what help anybody could give them. And about an hour into the dinner, there was some commotion at the far end of the table, and a man got up and quietly waved and nodded to people as he moved toward the exit. It was explained to us that he was off to prison for the night, and he had to be there at 10 sharp, and was asking us to excuse him. Uh, we shook his hand, still wondering what this was all about, and he thanked us for coming to Chile and left. He was a short fellow with very thick eyeglasses, an editor, and they said he had a wife and six children and had been sentenced 
to 530-odd nights in prison for writing an insult to the Navy. That had been in 1980, uh, 1983, that insult, and they had only gotten around to sentencing him now, but he had also insulted the Navy in 1984, 1985, and 1986. He seemed to have skipped 1987, but the thing was that he was still to be sentenced for those other years, and I thought, my God, he must be wishing for the end of this regime. He had a very strong resemblance to photos I've seen of Isaac Babel, and maybe this was what moved me to suggest that maybe some of us ought to go to the prison and wish him good night, which Rose Styron and I did the following evening, Bill having had a few sick hours from the food or water, and we found half a dozen friendly photographers on the street, one of whose pictures was published next day in La Epoca, showing a Cardenas, this editor, and me shaking hands at the jail. Uh, there was also a clutch of young people there with lighted candles waiting to walk Cardenas to the prison door. Nobody hassled us or them, and this was one of the facts that may help describe the sort of state of abeyance prevailing in Chile now. People know that absolutely anything can happen at any time because it is, after all, a military government, and the military has a small brain and a terrible temper. For that remark, incidentally, I could be curling up in jail every night for maybe two or three years. Knowing the vagaries of dictatorial regimes, I think it too early to say whether our trip to Chile was worth the time and expense, at least in terms of concrete improvements in the treatment of writers, journalists, and others in that country. I don't think we discovered anything very new, but of course that wasn't the main point. We had not come to investigate, but to publicly demonstrate the solidarity of the American Penn Center and implicitly international Penn with the harried intellectual community of the country, and this, I believe, was surely accomplished. The press coverage of everything about, uh, everything both of us did through the week was immense. It is even possible, as we were assured was the case, that from what we said and did, a lot of ordinary Chileans got their first credible news that the non-communist world believed there was even a human rights problem in the country. As the plane was nearing Santiago, a lady showed up beside my seat explaining that she was the chief of Chile's press mission at the United Nations in New York. And she offered to introduce me, and presumably Styron, to people on the government side of the human rights issue and hoped that we would not be meeting exclusively with people from the opposition. And I said I would like very much to talk to Pinochet himself if she could arrange that. But she was afraid that that would probably be impossible. In fact, she was returning to Santiago from New York in order to try to get the general to give her an interview and doubted she would succeed. Asked why she wanted an interview with her boss, she spoke what was apparently the general opinion that his image was very bad, in fact, quote, the worst, unquote, but that he was really a much better fellow than he appeared to be. The problem was simply that he didn't like to talk to anybody, even apparently his own PR people. Anyway, she kept pressing me not to fall for the propaganda of one side and asked, how can it be a dictatorship if he's holding an election in which he might be defeated? This indeed was one half of a good question, as it turned out. As for our willingness to hear both sides, editors of the government-approved press were invited to meet with us at the dinner given by the Journalists Association and elected not to show up, and an invitation for us to appear on a TV news program for interviews was rescinded during our stay. As will be clear, however, we did speak with pro-government journalists, and a surprising amount of our words were indeed reported. Approaching the landing, I found myself stiffening defensively at the prospect of meeting the press, which would undoubtedly be hostile to our mission. I recalled some of, other, of the other police states I'd been in, Franco, Spain in the early 60s, when my wife's tripod was gravely suspected of being a machine gun, and Moscow 23 years ago, where I had wakened on my first morning and opened Pravda to find a long and circumstantial interview with me, which I had never given. In Prague in 68, I had given an interview in the office of the literary magazine Listy with some 30 or 40 writers asking questions. 
and it turned out to be the last issue of that magazine, and many of those present was jailed soon after. What we confronted in Chile as we emerged into the airport lounge was a group of teenage interviewers with cheap tape recorders, all happily smiling and eager for us to explain our mission. Taken by surprise, I think we both instinctively decided to save the minimum until we could reconnoiter the situation with our hosts from Penn. Still, it did seem a bit odd being so defensive before an opposition that was hardly old enough to get driver's licenses. Our schedule would put us together or separately in public meetings, interviews, and press conferences from morning into the night, some half dozen a day throughout five days in Chile. Quickly, some of the basics of the situation became clear. An opposition press of some two daily papers and a few news magazines does exist and seems pretty aggressive. There is also the Catholic radio station, which covers the whole country and is committed to the human rights struggle. However, the opposition is all but completely barred from television, which Pinochet uses intensively and is the chief source of information for most people. Newspapers, even the government ones, are not widely circulated. La Epoca, the chief opposition paper, has about 30,000 circulation in a nation of 12 million. The basic political struggle surrounds the September plebiscite, which is supposed to decide whether Pinochet continues as a dictator. However, even if he does lose the plebiscite, he still has a year of rule afterwards. While polls show a very close split among those who have made up their minds, some 40% are still undecided. Given his complete control of television news and propaganda, this may not bode well for the opposition, but nobody's ready to lay bets either way. Among sentiments opposing, it appears, are people's objections to his blatant favoring of the wealthy. He has actually repeated several times that the government must please the rich because they are the ones who have the money. And they alone can create wealth and jobs, the doctrine he admittedly had learned at the knee of economist Milton Friedman of the so-called Chicago School, who also, however, is supposed to have specified that his pro-business plan could not really work without political freedom in the country. But things are simpler in Chile, and taxes on big incomes and business have simply been slashed, while everybody else's have gone up. Unemployment is very high, but inflation has been held in check. The Chilean economy is said to be better off than most or all of the rest of Latin America, but in comparison with pre-Pinochet conditions, it is much worse. I'm speaking, of course, of before Allende's downfall, something which many commentators have apparently managed not to remember. Wages have been cut across the board, and the unions are safely controlled by the government. But exports, especially agricultural, have had a boom, and the trade balance is quite good. In short, there is more prosperity, but mainly for the wealthy, and more economic suffering for too many of the others, both at the same time. The one important question is whether Pinochet will succeed in frightening people with the specter of a return to the economic chaos of the last months of the Allende regime. If, as is widely believed, that chaos was helped along, if not in some part created by the CIA, which, in line with the Nixon-Kissinger destabilization program, paid truckers to strike, thus starving the capital of essential supplies. Its return is nevertheless a terrifying prospect to a lot of people. But probably the main fear which is ceaselessly evoked by press and TV is a guerrilla upsurge which only Pinochet and the army can be relied on to hold in check. Given the propaganda war by both sides, it is impossible to know how real the guerrilla threat really is, but the paranoia about communism is simply incredible. One editor confided in private that he had been approached by a writer who, on learning that he would be having dinner with Styron and Miller, asked him to ask Miller how much the Communist Party was paying him to come down to Chile. And when he objected that it was hardly a question he could put to me, he was advised to wait until we had left the country to insinuate this claim in an article. The point is that the promoter of the idea seemed to believe that we indeed were secretly in the pay of the Communists. I was asked on three separate interviews whether I wasn't worried that we were being used in this mission. I finally replied that I hoped so, that we had come here to be used by democratic people trying to establish a new democracy. Unless we were severely misguided, 
the anxiety about communism is deep and pervasive and is one of Pinochet's main strengths. The newspapers feature stories of young women being used by the Communist Party to plot assassinations and set up victims, so that almost anyone who's against Pinochet is more than likely fronting for the Communists. Each day, the front pages repeat aspects of the recent assassination of a retired policeman, the third in recent months, allegedly by Communist guerrillas. Again, the moral is always that only Pinochet and the army can stand against his violence. Some such fear no doubt accounts for the absence of school administration personnel at the law school in the Catholic University where one or both of us were greeted by packed auditoriums and cheering student audiences. These question and answer sessions lasted over two hours each, were attended by both opposition and government press observers, and demonstrated a touching gratitude for our presence. But, excepting for a quick two-minute greeting session with the dean of the law school, a government appointee, no administrators dared show up at all. The law dean was obviously under tension as he silently <coughs> shook our hands, having agreed to meet us only moments after we had actually entered the building. Such was the uncertainty that surrounded us as far as the officials were concerned. At the faculty lunch given us at the Catholic University, most of the teachers present were said to be Pinochet supporters, but having taught our works, were curious about us, and finally were quite warm. But the students were hot and eager, sometimes to the point of chaos, and at any hint of criticism of the repression, they took it up with gusto, applauding and laughing, and clearly wanting more of the same. Nobody could doubt their awareness of the repression and their opposition to it. A woman journalist said to me with lowered voice, my daughter is 15, so she has only known this regime. Now with this plebiscite coming up, she's unbelievably excited. I never imagined one could say no to the government, she keeps saying. But the mother believes that they're in for years of dictatorship, although everything is very quickly and sometimes uh, strangely changing now. El Mercurio, the largest newspaper, did not print one line about our arrival, but by the next day, to catch up with the opposition press, they evidently thought better of it and ran stories, which, it must be said, were not by any means always slanted against us, or at least not blatantly. The headlines were something else, however. In some instances, they would quote half a sentence, sentence such as, Miller says the country is more open than he expected, leaving out what was indeed included in the body of the story, that I had gone on to say that people were still being kidnapped and journalists were jailed, too recently in Valparaiso, and that there was a general apprehension that the plebiscite would be stolen or boarded. Chile is basically a kind of American adaptation of Franco-Spain, where liberty exists when it does by the dictator's whim. But Spaniards who lived through the Franco years are often surprised at the degree of liberty allowed here. Nevertheless, in the view of two officials of the Catholic Church, things have actually worsened badly in the past year or so, with a rise in assaults on people by the police and army and an increase in official violence. At the same time, the legal system, such as it is, is continually being reinforced with yet newer provisions that make it a practical impossibility to defend or arrested or accused people or to track down individual violators of discipline in the armed forces. By allowing an opposition press, the appearances of openness have been achieved, but it is simply a larger prison whose walls are less easily visible. And again, the justification is basically the threat of communism and or the threat of a return to economic chaos under a democratic government. Styron talked with novelists and I with playwrights, and both of us got some insights into the state of people's inner freedom through responses to our questions. I asked a conference of playwrights if they imagined themselves writing for an audience already persuaded of their beliefs or a neutral audience or one that they had to convince. They confessed to a quandary. How political ought their work be? What form should it take, avant-garde or popular? The fact, however, is that their audiences are passionate but very small plays mostly run on weekends only, and are largely made up of opponents of the repression to begin with. But in any case, the real issue for them turned out to be self-censorship for fear of the regime's wrath, and this they confessed to readily. 
With that sword hanging overhead, it was hard for them to think beyond their anxieties. Ludicrous as some of Pinochet's speeches might sound, it does not make things easier for writers when he speaks as the harsh disciplinary father whose sublime mission is not only saving Chile, but literally the entire world. For the heavy implication is that nobody better get in his way as he pursues his holy destiny. Again, at the law school, one girl rose to ask, what would you do if you lived in this place where you are not free to express yourself? She was hushed by others, who I believe saw that it would be dangerous for us to answer this question candidly, lest we fall afoul of the authorities as advocates of unlawful resistance. One day, whole columns of print plus color photos are devoted to Pinochet inaugurating the Day of the Infantry with a gigantic parade of arms, tanks, marching men, etc. However, the U.S. has ceased to sell him arms or spare parts, which he must buy now on the black market. Part of the surreal quality of the dictatorship is that while it clearly favors American business and its ethos, American Ambassador Bonds is not on speaking terms with Pinochet, who hates him. A good guess is that at some point what might be called the Philippine option was adopted, whereby an unpopular dictator was left high and dry as more democratic forces moved into the locus of power. But Pinochet, as everyone will remind you, still has the guns and has more than demonstrated that he's willing to use them. We were invited to stop in at the United Nations, whose offices serving all of Latin America are located in an elegant modern building set in a park-like place on the outskirts of the city. We were to be given the Peace Medal, last awarded the Pope on his visit here, and were told to expect to meet with a small group of officers of the UN for the presentation. As it turned out, the main auditorium was totally packed with probably 500 many standing in the back. Once again, it was clearly a demonstration of appreciation for our having breached the ordinary indifference toward the human rights violations in the country. Styron and I made short acceptance speeches of the recognition of this reality. At a specially summoned meeting of Chilean Penn in the living room of one of the writers, it was obvious that the recent healing of the breach between two camps of writers in that organization is still not complete. The organization has been timidly led and gave all the appearances of somnolescent futility. The president, for example, while not supporting the nightly imprisonment of Cardenas, did excuse her inaction by declaring, but it is simply illegal to criticize the Navy. And she reminded me that there is, after all, an opposition press now, and that is simply a fact. Styron being involved elsewhere that evening, I tried with some help from Rose Styron to show them that Penn could be made into a viable instrument that might help them survive here as writers, citing American Penn's vitality as an example. The two or three younger writers present, among a dozen or so of the older ones, seemed really interested, but it was hard to know if we had made any permanent headway. We later learned that from other young writers interested in reactivating Penn that they had not been invited to the meeting at all. The president, in any case, says she's resigned to losing her office. Her timorousness cannot be condoned, but it, cannot, it can be understood, with Pinochet's reverence for law being on about the level of Ollie North's, no one can rely on legal protection for elementary rights, and she's hardly alone in her fears of speaking out. Political anxieties apart, the warmth of their gratitude for our having come may also spring from the common feeling that Chile, as they say, is not on the way to anywhere else, and that we had broken through, at least for a moment, some of their feelings of being isolated and forgotten by the world. In the Catholic Church, we met and talked with some peasant women whose husbands, brothers, and sons, daughters, and sisters had been disappeared in the original Pinochet thrust for power a decade ago, and are still persisting in their campaign for information as to the fate their loved ones. Small country women, brown as nuts, patient and obdurate, they pile up their crumbs of information about their lost loved ones for the day when someone will listen and point up possessively to file boxes on shelves where their notes are stored. Of course, the regime feels no obligation even to defend its own criminal operatives, the whole monstrous business being simply one more non-event among many others. 
But one thing is undeniable. The youth is not at all indifferent, not at all jaded, not at all neutral. They were hanging from the rafters at all our appearances, and the passion of their welcome was such that even the government press was from time to time constrained to give it notice. In a multi-page, fairly adulatory article in El Mercurio featuring my marriage to Marilyn Monroe, the interviewer, a woman who besides had witnessed the enthusiasm of the audience of Chilean fitter people and others, perhaps a thousand of them in the Catholic University, wrote that, quote, it cannot be denied that he came to Chile to help in efforts to improve human rights here. Cannot be denied. Our Chilean friends quickly ensured me that this delicate insinuation of the real purpose of our trip may well have been the first news that her avid readers had had of much of the world's opinion that Pinochet's mindless anti-communism might not be enough to justify the rape of human rights that continues in Chile despite the undeniable atmospherics of toleration. If this is so or nearly so, we feel obligated to pen for the opportunity of showing the flag and perhaps brightening a very dark and anxious corner of the world. So the picture is obviously a mixed one. People half expect something awful to interrupt the progress of democracy while hoping against hope that Pinochet will go quietly. At the same time, undeniable gains have been made in recent months in toleration of opposing viewpoints. It has to be remembered that Chile is the only nation in Latin America that never had a dictator before, the only one whose presidents could not be reelected, the only one whose people cherished constitutional government for over a century and a half. Now the Congress building is shut down, its members dispersed, its rooms used for minor government offices. Looking at that immense structure in the middle of Santiago, it seems to have had its tongue cut out, and the pen has had even a modest part in freeing its powers of speech, we may have earned our bread. Thank you. Yeah, there are. Yes, questions. Uh, from the, just five days. Uh, the 5th to uh, Andrea, the 5th to the 11th, right? Yeah. No, yes. June. Just last week. You know, I have to find that out. It's, uh, He's the man I went to jail every night. Well, I, I uh, can only believe that uh, everybody will tell you in Chile that he's a very unpopular dictator at this point. Uh, while 40% of the electorate, according to the latest polls, has not made up its mind whether they're going to vote yes or no to his staying on, of the ones who have made up their minds, it's a pretty even split between the ones who will vote no and the ones who will vote yes, which is, they think, remarkable given the fact that the opposition has no access to television and that almost all news is on the television. That's where the news comes from, and it's very well dramatized. They have some pretty good technicians doing the television. I saw some of it. It's as good as you could want. Uh, so I think that the U.S. at some point, I don't know when, took, as I say, the Philippine option. That is, either they could continue indefinitely 
backing him the way they did initially and confronting the democratic opposition in the country because after all Chile had authentic political parties this is not a country without a political a very intricate political and mature uh, uh, political life so these parties are as uh, powerful as uh, one could imagine and uh, they are there in place and they are led by competent people who are to be sure that their, their tongues are, are tied because of the lack of money and propaganda and so on but uh, there is an opposition in the country and it is large and the alternative is to back Pinochet to the hilt and to have, him, have us go down with him because I think that they consider that he's a loser. It's the only construction I can have for it. The antagonism of the American embassy toward him and he toward them is open. There's no, uh, there's no hiding it, no attempt to hide it. Nor he to the American ambassador. Well, this is I think they're not, that may be next. <laughs> uh, I think they're playing a little bit both ways, yes. But the Congress, I'm told, uh, our Congress, uh, turned down a, uh, an aid package of, uh, of 60 million or something like that, which is chicken feet, but it is symbolic, so that we don't give them that. And they have cut off the supply of arms some time back. Yeah. So I think uh, you're right in one respect. That is, they're, like all good uh, geopoliticians, they're ready for anything. But clearly, they are making it known that they don't like it. That yes, we went through there. It's well, that's what I've said here, yes. The unemployment has sword and uh, you see what the UN people told us was that everybody's forgotten that Chile before Pinochet and before everything exploded under Allende uh, had a far higher economic level than anything Pinochet has been able to produce with this famous Chicago uh, plant what they do is say, oh, it's much better than it was four years ago, but four years ago was a slump. They're never comparing the figures with the pre-coup figures. That's the point. Could you identify yourself for a second? Uh, just the background to that is that those people uh, were never in Penn. Um, I mean, not in Chilean Penn anyway. Uh, at least most of them were. There may be a couple of them who are older who may have been in many, many years ago, but for all practical purpose in the last 20 years or 10 years, they were not in Penn. They were not permitted to be in Penn. And it was a great loss because the writers in Chile really want to have a very active Penn. Uh, so that one of the, uh, I think, great accomplishments of this trip is that these writers are now all in. And this, the pressure of the Starr and Miller trip is what made that happen. And do you know how many writers 
Uh, no. I, well, I may have, but I, nobody made a point of that. Jorge Edwards was living in exile. Whether he was exiled is another story. But he was living... Well, an awful lot of them left uh, because there was anxiety about disappearing. They stayed there. Uh, but I can't tell you the numbers. Well, uh, of course, the censorship is, uh, has been in the past. Uh, the, the journal, the, until recently, the so-called opposition press didn't exist at all. And the possibility simply of publishing in the country was very low because the publishers, first of all, Chile doesn't publish money books anyway because they're not great readers. They come in from outside. There are some publications. Uh, and I think that my reading of it is that the writers who suffered, suffered uh, as uh, opponents of this regime, basically. Uh, the playwrights, for example, I said, is there a, a censor over the theater? And they smiled. They said, well, they don't care about us because we only play on the weekends. There's hardly anybody, you know, they're not going to bother with that detail. They control the television, the radio, excepting the Catholic radio. And uh, the rest of it, they, they just forget about. Oh, yes. If anybody wrote a play or a book that held anything remotely connected to the armed forces in contempt or satirically treated, he'd have had it. They simply will not permit that. They, nobody would dare do it. He'd be asking to go to prison, period. And mind you, these courts are not civilian courts. He's a military court. The judge is, a, is an officer in the, in the Army or the Navy. Uh, as in, incidentally, Turkey, where I witnessed a trial in a court where a judge sat with a black judicial robes on over his uniform, and uh, he was the judge. Yes. Well, I assumed that we all knew. Well, I shouldn't have. What happened, basically, was that uh, the Chilean pen was an ineffectual group of people who were of the older generation and lived in order not to give offense, basically. And it was more of a social gathering place for the aged. And... Uh, the younger guys, the meaning anybody, let's say, under 50, uh, who wanted to take positions on censorship and on the government oppression, were blocked off by the leadership of Penn. And they were not allowed to offer uh, resolutions and to function as members of an organization like that. Uh, now, as Karen can tell you, the time came when uh, the international pen, because this lady who was president of pen, stood up and justified it at some Congress, the Pinochet regime, and its censorship. She actually. This is as recently as December of '87 in San Juan. She made a speech in which she justified the, the oppression, so to speak. Uh, she is the president, and still is. Uh, as a result of that, 
the writers who were barred from offering resolutions and so forth uh, formed a sort of a rump pen. And now, when we said we were coming down to Chile, two or three days before, she agreed that they could all come in and make one pen. And she said openly to me, and before all the others, I see now that they don't want me, and I am not going to hold my post. I'll have to, um, I have to give it to you. Andrea, can you get the international pen list? Also, we can get, uh, within a couple of hours, we can get the full list of the new members by just calling Santiago. Yeah. Yeah. It's not difficult. I just right. didn't. Well, they actually formed a, she allowed them in, uh, what was it, three days before we would arrive. The Friday before the Sunday night they left. The Friday, the Andrea, what would that be? They left on the, I guess the uh, third, the third of June they were, we, they, they were officially allowed into Penn. The But this is the, this is the president of the pen, Eliana. Cerda, C E R D A. Well, the parties, uh, uh, this is the, uh, what one is told now, the, the, the opposition parties have now got the right to post election observers in the polls. 
uh, polling places. Uh, of course, as we know in our experience in the United States in the old days, <laughs> there's plenty of ways to steal an election. <laughs> and when you're dealing with the army, it's a little easier even. Uh, so uh, nobody's at all uh, certain that this thing will actually happen and happen honestly. There's no question about that. But the importance to them of it. See, there was a party, one of the radical parties, advised all their members. By radical, I mean in the European sense radical. That is, they were sort of leftish centrists. They said they wouldn't participate in this farce, and they advised all their people not to vote at all. But then they changed their minds because people really began to take this seriously, the population in general. Uh, so it was felt, and it's still felt now, more than ever, that this is, has the possibility of generating a kind of movement in the country for the first time in 15 years that would express uh, through, well, even if it's, if it's technically defeated, would express the will of the country to become a democ democracy all over again. Uh, so it is being taken very seriously in Chile, I think, but I, I'm sure they all recognize that it's all liable to explode in their faces. There was a story just yesterday, I think, in the paper where Pinochet said in the Times something to the effect that he, he didn't expect to have to steal an election. Uh, so even this has gotten to him, you see, and he's trying to legitimize the thing. Now. Uh, it is going to be chancy, though. There's no doubt about it. Right, at least. They were not allowed into the universities with the students to do anything, to make speech. Well, they came in with us. I'm not sure they'll be in there tomorrow. See, uh, let me point out something. Uh, that is that our addressing the student population this way uh, that is taking questions from them, which fundamentally is what we did. And a number of the questions were about civil rights and human rights. We didn't guide the questions. They, they, it was their, they were completely their questions. Uh, this is the first time that this has happened in Chile since the dictatorship started. Yeah. Arthur Miller and William Styron come to uh, uh, confront the students of the University of Chile or the Catholic University or the law school, which is where we work. Well, they, they talked to us a little bit about it. Yes, it's called Chile Crea, Chile Creates. But I'm afraid I can't tell you too much about it because it was still in the organizing stages when we were there. And they, what they intend is to try to invite uh, artists and writers from all over the world to come to Chile. And that's part of an attempt, really, I guess, to uh, sustained connections between Chilean people and the outside world because they've been very isolated by the dictatorship. And now they're, they're uh, trying to do everything possible to break down that isolation. And uh, that's part of that field. But I'm, I'm not going to tell you that I know a great deal about the uh, authorship of this thing at all, because I don't. 
Law school dean. Law school dean was very nervous when we arrived. And I was told that it wasn't until we were almost in the auditorium that some, I noticed that somebody intercepted us on the way to the auditorium and asked us to come to his office. And there he stood in the doorway and he nodded and didn't say a syllable. Didn't ask us to sit down, nothing. And he looked like uh, he was connected to the wall socket. I mean, he was really stiff. <laughs> and we said, good morning, and he said, nothing. And then we went into the lecture hall, and that guy was scared. But he is, of course, a government appointee. And uh, I suppose he was worried at the, what we were going to say and what the outcome of this was going to be, because that auditorium had probably 50% more students in it than it was built to hold. They were jammed in there. You couldn't get another human being in there. And any remotest mention of anything connected with repression or with expression, the place came apart. And uh, this was a surprise to me, I must tell you. So this is basically a one-shot that these universities will bring and open and maybe the harbinger of things to come, but we can't Well, anything. you see, now what's going to happen to them, and I think they would be concerned about this, if now they, uh, two other guys from uh, some other place get invited. And these students decide, why don't we invite somebody else? And a, a stream of people starts coming in there. And they have one of these demonstrations after another. Because this was a demonstration, as well as a question and answer thing. I mean, for a girl to get up, as I described, and say, how would you, what would you do if you lived in this country where you couldn't express yourself? Well, immediately she said that. You could see the rumbling in the audience telling her not to ask me that question for the reason that if I gave her the right answer, we'd be on a plane going out probably pretty soon, you see? But she had a lot of guts, that girl. And you could tell from the reaction of the audience that they thought she did. I said that I couldn't intervene in your politics, but uh, we're here to uphold the right of anybody to speak anywhere in the world. And uh, leave it as general as that. But uh, address the student? About six times, six different places. Karen, would you answer that? Yes. Uh, the writers, some of whom were mentioned before, um, in Chile, who are uh, out of the opposition or independent. Uh, I don't know if this one is. That's correct. Oh, we had nothing to do. It had nothing to do with Penn as such. Um, if there's a group at all, one would say the Union of Writers, the Union of what used to be called Young Writers. Is that right, Cynthia? I say if there's any group, if these writers who invited us in the first place could be called a group, they'd be more in the Union of what used to be called Young Writers. Right. Um, they asked us to come. Uh, and furthermore, they specifically asked for Mr. Miller and William Siren. So in other words, we were responding to their desires and their needs. No. You don't need a visa. didn't meet uh, Para, but I met uh, Donoso, who was uh, there. And uh, I think they're all in the same boat, Alan. They're all waiting to see whether there's any reality to this uh, opening up. Uh, and the people who invited us are trying to make it real by bringing people in who will address the folks and uh, make, in other words, demand that the government, in effect, make good on what it claims to be happening. See, they, it is advertised as a protected democracy. 
This is what the system is called. It's a protected democracy. And as long as it's uh, claiming to be a democracy, uh, then they're saying, well, okay, then let us practice this much democracy. And therefore, it was very important that we utilize, that they utilize, what rights they could secure in this respect. And uh, I thought, as I say in my piece, I didn't know if this had any use, finally, because, after all, from our viewpoint, what happened? <laughs> we did what we do here in the United States 85 times a day in New York City. There's somebody talking to somebody else. Uh, groups of people, but it was a lesson to realize that this was an, ex an unheard of thing uh, up to this point. The people, I, I'll tell you a quick one, as I was leaving the Catholic University, uh, after our, well, I, I was there alone that day because I addressed the theater workers. And, uh, and incidentally, at that, I neglected to mention that in these notes, a woman got up after my talk and uh, marched over to a microphone which was connected as these are to recording device and said uh, in a loud voice, uh, I was told not to disturb the proceedings by telling you that I want to thank you for having uh, interceded when uh, we were threatened, she was an actress as it turned out, uh, with uh, uh, the uh, death threats a couple of months ago. A number of actors and actresses got phone calls and letters threatening them with death if they uh, didn't leave the country. Most of these people, I take it, were on the left. I don't think this was at all, in general, every actor and actress got it. And uh, our hosts at the Catholic University were extremely nervous when she took that microphone. But she just put it down and left. She'd gotten her guns off, and that was it. But uh, it's hard to exaggerate what one felt was, including in the United Nations, which is a protected area. Uh, they thought that they would get eight or 10 executives to greet us, and then we'd be handed this medal. And uh, he told me that it was only at the last moment that they realized that the hundreds of people in the United Nations wanted to say that they appreciated us coming there because of the intensity of the repression that that country has undergone. Now, uh, as I say, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it will all fall to pieces, but they are trying to utilize the opening as much as possible. And uh, that was really the function that we performed. I have her name, uh, yeah. Norella. Uh, uh, I'll have to get it for you. I have it at home. I, as I said in these notes, I uh, asked her whether I could meet Pinochet or anybody like that, but even even the ones from, uh, like, uh, she said I should meet with their, their newspaper people on the right, you know. And I said, fine, okay. Uh, and we invited them, or the hosts invited them, to this uh, journalist association dinner, but they didn't show up. Then at the last moment, I simply didn't have the time to arrange a breakfast. I'd it would have been a 15-minute breakfast to talk with them. And uh, in all probability, they would simply have 
noted in their paper that they had talked with me or something like that. Uh, so I never did get to talk. Yes, I think that never before has there been a press coverage of this magnitude or anything approaching this magnitude or anything approaching this magnitude for a mission of this kind dealing with human rights in that country. That's at least what I was told on several occasions uh, by everybody. As I stated in the notes, uh, it was seriously proposed that in this story in El Mercurio, which is the big, biggest newspaper, about me, and where the woman said something to the effect that it has to be admitted that that's why I came. That was her use of her, that's a direct quote. It has to be admitted that I came here the reason I came here was for the human rights issue. That means that uh, she's apologizing to the reader for injecting this ugly note. See, they want, the readers of that newspaper may never have heard that there was a human rights issue in the country. Or I think as you said earlier, Arthur, that, that it's so well known abroad, wasn't that another? Yes, and that uh, the rest of the world took for granted that everybody knew that people were disappearing and had been beaten up, and as the Catholic people told me, that it has gotten worse in the last year or so. But apparently that news has not penetrated to some sectors of the population. But we know that here, don't we? I mean, things go on and you walk into places and they don't know that anything about them, because they haven't seen it on the major networks, or they haven't read it in the major newspapers. They've only, the only people who would know about it are people who read, let's say, The Nation or some far out magazine. No, it cannot be denied. No, it's can't. I, I think I've got That's it. That's right. probably. There are lots of well, press here. If anybody yeah, wants to go through them, but which, do, you, do you remember which? I don't think you've got them all here. Wait a minute. Here it is. It's in this paper here. Did you read Spanish? Did you read Spanish? Uh, well, some couple people here do. If you want some help after. Anyway, you'll find it. Ask her to read it to me. I can point out where it is because I was sort of downhearted when I saw this cover. <laughs> and I thought, Jesus, all come to that. But then the guys <laughs> who read it said, no, this is great because uh, it does discuss the issue. I can't find it right now, but it's in there. It's called the Medal of Peace. Oh, no, excuse me. It's called the Peace Medal. The United Nations, uh, well, the United Nations. Let's see. Well, it would be the Chilean. See, in Chile, the United Nations has its central office for all of Latin America, including the Caribbean. Uh, normally, it, it does uh, economics and econometric measurements and all those studies. It's not it's got very little to do with political issues of any kind. In Chile. In in the in uh, in uh, Well we've got to find out Maybe what they call the UN and yeah. see what they I've got the medal at home, unfortunately. I don't have it with me, but it says it on there. Yeah, she probably wrote it down. Rose took all these notes. 
I think they want to activate the organization to oppose the repression. I think by any means they can possibly develop. In other words, basically what they could conceivably do would be to forward information to writers in general, through us, for example. If we let them know stuff, they would distribute. See, the basic problem is isolation. Are isolated. The country is isolated. Has been isolated. It is now. For example, the best thing that could happen would be, as they explained to me, if something is printed in the New York newspaper, American newspaper, then they can quote it. See, then that would be the greatest. That's that's what they're. And Penn would do down there essentially what we try to do here. I guess. I never heard of it. I never heard of it. But who knows? I don't know that it, it was or it was. You know, it's a long time ago now. I don't know the history of Chilean pen from the 60s. I'm more familiar with it from the 70s on, but not from the 60s. Um, well, are there any? And then maybe one more, and then and then if you have questions, and Mr. Miller, you can perhaps ask afterwards. Or why don't you? Or if you're all ready to? Oh, well, why don't we have one more question? Yeah. Perhaps it's best if we do break up now and you can ask your question privately. Thank you all for coming.